everybody, and welcome back to the Sports MedCast brought to you by the American Medical Society for Sports Medicine. We are your hosts, Drs. Scott Young and Cole Taylor. Cole, it is great to be back, man. How's it going? It is great to be back. It feels like I haven't talked to you in months. I think it actually has been months. Um, <laughs> have you grown older? Uh, are you more gray hair? Uh, Beard, like what's going on with you? I, I am trying to grow a mustache right now, but that's not anything that I share with very many people. So uh, I think it's best if we just move on to talking about sports medicine. Yeah, I think that's probably a good idea. In fact, now I'm having trouble getting that image out of my mind. It's, uh, <laughs> it's going to haunt me for the next several days. Thanks a lot, buddy. I appreciate no that. Problem. No problem. And I know there's been a little bit of a break in the Sports Medcast episodes, and we're just uh, spending some time shaping the Sports Medcast, how it's going to go forward. And we're really excited. We've got some great topics, some great stuff coming up. We're going to continue to bring you clinically relevant pearls in sports medicine, and we're really excited about that. So, Scott, with, without uh, any further ado, what are we going to talk about um, today? I am super excited about today's topic. We are going to be discussing the recently published Overuse Injuries and Burnout in Youth Sports, a position statement from the American Medical Society for Sports Medicine. This was recently published in the Clinical Journal of Sports Medicine and the British Journal of Sports Medicine. It is my great pleasure to introduce the authors of this paper, Dr. John DeFiori, Professor-in-Chief, UCLA Division of Sports Medicine and Non-Operative Orthopedics, Head Team Physician of the UCLA Department of Intercollegiate Athletics, and the President of the American Medical Society for Sports Medicine. Also with us is Dr. Joel Brenner, the Director of Sports Medicine at the Children's Hospital of the King's Daughters in Norfolk, Virginia, Chairperson of the American Academy of Pediatrics Council on Sports Medicine and Fitness, and an Associate Professor of Pediatrics at Eastern Virginia Medical School. And also, Niru Jayanti, Associate Professor of Family Medicine, Orthopedics and Rehabilitation, and the Medical Director of Primary Care Sports Medicine at Loyola University Medical Center in Chicago, Illinois, and a member of the Board of Directors for the American Medical Society for Sports Medicine. Welcome to the show, gentlemen. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. That's great to have you guys. We're really excited about talking about this here. Uh, Dr. Fiore. so where did this concept come from? What made you guys want to write about this topic? Well, I think this has been a longstanding um, interest uh, within the members of the American Medical Society for Sports Medicine. I think most of us in the sports medicine community are quite aware that both overuse injuries and burnout are concerns uh, in youth sports, and we think at least in part, the growing emphasis on competitive success has led to increased pressure to begin high-intensity training at young ages. And we've learned from the literature that overuse injuries are probably more common than we think. Uh, I think with this in mind, the uh, AMSSM leadership felt that a position statement focusing on these issues would be very timely. Uh, and uh, in late 2011, uh, the organization conducted a nominating process and uh, we convened an outstanding group of our writers to research uh, and put this project uh, together. Uh, it took quite a long time. Uh, we did a very extensive literature review, uh, a very systematic uh, search, and the idea was to make it as evidence-based uh, as we could. Uh, and with that, uh, you know, going throughout the paper, trying to make it uh, very sound uh, with the available research and evidence that we have. Hopefully this will be a document that will be a good resource for all of us in the sports medicine community. And you could tell that you guys did put a lot of time and effort into this, and uh, I certainly want to commend all three of you on a very well-written position statement. 
in uh, developing the sports medcast, Scott and I have really tried to focus on highlighting high-yield clinical pearls, and this position statement is just full of them. Uh, we wanted to present some questions that would hopefully allow you guys to highlight some of the more important or the most important points from the position statement. And so I was thinking about prevention, of course, and before these overuse injuries ever occur, we have the opportunity to meet and screen these athletes with the pre-participation exam. So how can we use the PPE to identify athletes who are at risk for overuse injury? You're right. The PPE itself is maybe the only time we actually get to interact with an uninjured athlete, uh, while most of the time, unfortunately, we're seeing them uh, after it's almost too late. Um, one of the um, opportunities at that time is to investigate a few things. Number one, what type of sport they are, uh, and look at the independent risk based on that type of sport. Um, and then also it's an opportunity to find out the actual training volumes uh, or weekly training volumes, and particularly if they start exceeding more than 16 hours per week, uh, which has been shown pretty well and consistently to be uh, an independent risk for injury, uh, if they also train year-round. And that definition can vary, but um, when you get beyond eight months, for example, in baseball, um, we know that there are pretty significant independent risks as well. Uh, for shoulder and elbow symptoms and potential even surgeries in that area. Uh, and the last category, which we may talk about a little bit later, is in the younger athlete about um, if they're specializing as well, too. And I think if we spend some time, rather than just signing the form on the PPE and, and actually try to get a sense of the amount of training and uh, the amount of intensity, we may, we may be able to intervene a little bit earlier and, and talk about some of these high-risk uh, concerns that we have. That's interesting, Niru. I hadn't heard this uh, more than 16 hours per week. Is that pretty much generalizable across most sports, or do you see that only in certain sports, or how do you look at that number? So a couple of our references were uh, large cross-sectional groups. Um, of high, It was actually in high school sports, and, and it was actually a pretty consistent dose-dependent relationship between um, adjusted risk of injury as well as uh, and, and the development um, based on hours per week. And once actually you get to 16 hours per week, it was, a, it was the largest spike. Now, this has been reproduced in a couple of different settings. We had done some stuff on tennis players as well, too. And, and each time you look at it, it seems like when you get to that point, it, it, it's, a, you know, it's been consistent enough, to, at least for my mind, to, to feel that you know, uh, you're, you're in a little bit higher risk range. Um, well, certainly lower risk can cause it, and some people get away with higher risk, but, but at least in the data that, I, that we were able to see. One thing I wanted to, to point out is, as you just mentioned, uh, most of the data is uh, with uh, respect to this issue is in high school uh, age and older. And we have very little data, particularly with respect to the pre-participation exam in younger athletes. And I think one of the take-home messages in, in revealing all this is that we need to encourage younger athletes, younger children, to get uh, screened. Um, you know, certainly a large number of children participate well below the high school age, uh, and they're involved in club sports and uh, recreational uh, local uh, rec leagues, uh, and they can be fairly uh, active in terms of hours per week, as you mentioned, multiple sports, and I think the biggest challenge for that age group is actually uh, encouraging uh, their families to uh, take advantage of a pre-participation exam, and we can address an awful lot of these preventive issues or at least uh, have the families become aware of these issues during that time. That's a great point. And you mentioned families. I think this sometimes becomes a problem for us. I mean, if you identify these kids that have signs of overuse injury or are 
practicing in a way that we think they're going to be at high risk for developing overuse injuries or burnout. You try to address this with their parents, with the, the, the athlete's parents, and they're often very invested in this, uh, this sport, emotionally, financially. Um, how, how do we, what, what, what strategies can we employ to try to get compliance out of the, the families and, and keep these kids from developing injuries or making their overuse injuries worse? You know, that, that can be a very difficult situation. And I think one of the most important things is to establish a rapport with that family and that child uh, to let them know that you're interested in their success down the road as well. Uh, you're not, you don't see them just as a patient with an elbow injury or a patient with a knee problem. You see them as someone who has goals and aspirations, and you want to help them succeed. Um, it's also, I think, important to try to get a sense of the family dynamics and, you know, uh, where the motivation for participation is coming from. Uh, often it, it's, uh, it's a young youngster who is very talented and, and wants to uh, achieve the highest level that they can, whatever that level may be. Uh, at times we have uh, parents who are, you know, uh, trying to uh, help their child succeed and, and perhaps have gotten some uh, you know, misinformation along the way, and, and, and sort of addressing that can be very helpful. Um, and I think one of the things that I often see is an athlete who comes in sort of at the 11th hour with an injury that's been going on for a long time, and all of a sudden they have a very important event uh, approaching, and uh, their expectations are sometimes not realistic in terms of being able to satisfactorily address and, and treat that injury or problem uh, to allow them to participate at the level that they want to for that event. And one of the things I, I always uh, um, encounter is an athlete who is going to be in front of scouts or coaches or recruiting process, and, you know, I try to tell the family, hey, you know, if, if your child isn't at their best, it's probably not a good idea for them to be participating because they're going to be uh, perhaps not performing at their best, and that's not going to help them down the road. And that often makes sense to them. You know, all of a sudden they take a step back and say, hey, wait a minute, maybe we need to reevaluate what we're planning on in the next couple of weeks and look more at the long term. And I think that's one of the big things, not just the immediate upcoming events, but what's their long-term goal and how can you help them achieve that? Sure. I'm sure Miru and Joel, I'm sure you've seen this, and I'd be interested in hearing how you've approached this as well. Well, I, I, I'll second what John says is that it's very hard to talk to young athletes and, and parents of young athletes uh, with regards to injury risk. And I know a lot of our, our manuscript here focuses on that because that's where most of the evidence is, um, but they don't want to hear about what might potentially happen. They're not interested in, in the outcomes um, that might hurt them. It's actually are they just going to be getting better, and they're, the, the, the heavy influences from really very little evidence from coaches and their peers, and it's kind of keeping up with the Joneses, is so much powerful than any manuscript we might be able to produce uh, with sure. evidence uh, to you know to show them the risk. So I think uh, it has to come from a lot of other avenues rather than even just us as medical providers. You, you talk about oh sorry, you, you were talking about keeping up with the Joneses there, and I was, I was going to skip ahead a couple questions because I really wanted to touch on this while you were there. And we we do seem to be kind of fighting this culture in the United States that emphasizes early sports specialization. I even see it with my own kids who are, who are very young, and there's this emphasis on travel teams and year-round participation in single sports. 
And can you just discuss your findings on whether sports specialization and full-time participation year-round contributes to long-term success? And are there any sports where early specialization should be considered? So I like to use the term the perceived success with uh, sports specialization, early sports specialization rather than the association, because it really is nothing more than a perceived success. And this obviously has been stimulated by a lot of uh, anecdotal stories that we see and hear and, you know, the Tiger Woods and the Andre Agassiz and, and, and it creates a, this perception and it's perpetuated by every coach and parent in the area that this is what needs to be done. Well, in our review, um, we were able to find almost no sports except for early entry sports such as gymnastics and diving, which would really require uh, early specialization um, to go ahead and, and, and be successful. And that's even all the way up to the elite level. Um, we can also dispel, I think, that 10,000-hour rule that is you know, basically about 20 hours a week for 10 years um, of, of uh, needing that to be successful as well, too, uh, because there are um, enough uh, instances in the literature, although you know, not the greatest studies, but do support much lower amounts, about three to four to 6,000 hours to even get to the elite level. So, so I, I, I would really prefer the term this is a per- perception, a perceived success associated with it. And, and as you get into other sports, uh, particularly those that are measurable outcomes like distance running and endurance events, uh, your um, uh, success actually improves the later you specialize um, and, you know, even if you get back to 18, 19, and much later, um, I think uh, we have to consider the type of sport and then your ultimate goal. Near, near this are, you know, really, I think, good points. And I think we, we really came across a lot of data that would say exactly what you're saying, that perhaps early sport diversification is uh, something that should be emphasized more than it has been to allow young kids to experiment with different activities and find the ones that they enjoy, find the, find the ones that they may have a talent for, uh, rather than getting funneled at a young age uh, into something that may end up being a dead end and then robbing them of other opportunities. Um, one of the things that, you know, when I talk to parents, you know, being involved at the NCAA level, we have certainly seen a large number of, of kids who have gone that route and in talking with our coaches, uh, you know, this emphasis on single-sport year-round participation ends up um, – one of our coaches actually used the term damaged goods. You know, they, they end up having to undo a lot of the bad habits and to try to overcome some of the chronic injuries that have developed um, in, in these youngsters as they've matured and are at the uh, collegiate level. So I, I think another thing to keep in mind – uh, and I think you mentioned this, is that, you know, with your children is that there is a um, an anxiety there with parents that if they don't follow the perception, as Nero calls it, that they may be losing out. And there is a big business surrounding youth sports that really um, takes advantage of the lack of, uh, of understanding and the anxiety that parents have that if their child isn't on a travel team by the time they're age 10, they'll never make their high school team. And it's a billion, multi-billion dollar industry uh, with coaches and personal trainers. And club teams have to pay their coaches, their staff, they have to pay for travel, sporting good manufacturers, tournament directors. There are communities across the U.S. that actually build complexes to attract youth sports tournaments uh, around, and they build their local economy 
hotels and restaurants around these events. So it's a, there's a lot of factors involved here, and it's, it's going to be a real challenge, I think, to help parents and, and, and youth sport organizers to understand, you know, what's going on in terms of long-term success and avoiding injury. I, I, I just want to say I'd, I'd have to completely agree with Nero and John. I mean, it's really a culture change that we have to do in order to um, prevent the overuse and, and the burnout. And I think if we can help the parents and really make contact with the kids when they're in middle school and, and even younger to have them just diversify and, and learn the skills and, and just have fun and really get back to kids having fun, um, knowing that most kids are not going to, uh, get that college scholarship or become the professional athlete, but we want them to learn the lifelong skills so when they're 30 and 40, they can still participate. I think that's really key. I agree, and, and I, I love the the talk about making sports fun again because sometimes with all of this anxiety and pressure, I think they lose that uh, the, the bottom line of sports. It's supposed to be fun. It's supposed to be enjoyable, and, and you talk about educating these parents and in, in the in your position statement, you talk about educating parents and coaches on the concept of sport readiness, which is related to some of what we're talking about here. I was wondering if you could explain this concept of sport sport readiness and give us an example of how uh, you as a provider might educate a parent or a coach on this topic. Sure. Well, sports readiness is, is defined as matching a child's growth and development, their, their motor, sensory, cognitive, and, and social development with the demands of a particular competitive sport. So the, the level of physical growth and development is really important in order to learn certain skills. For instance, in order to kick a ball, first the child has to have enough strength and balance to just stand on one leg and to swing the kicking leg or to hit a pitched ball. They have, actually have to have good eye tracking. Um, their cognitive development is also important in order for them to be out on the field and understand instructions or just staying in a position. Uh, for instance, in, in baseball, if you you know, if you want them to be staying in center field, they need to be able to understand that. Motor skills are also really important. Uh, and motor skills, they occur in a predictable sequence, but not always at a particular age. Um, and that's why chronological age really isn't a good predictor. It's really, this is all individualized for each athlete. And and finally, the parents and the coaches really need to just try to match up their the appropriate activities for certain age groups. So it's uh, someone who's in around, you know, four to five years of age, uh, good activities would be uh, something simple like running, tumbling, and throwing. Or when they get to 10 to 12, they could do more complex activities like basketball or volleyball. And the end result really is to make sure that the child's um, put in a, in a situation where they can meet the expectations because if they're not, if they're put in a place where they can't meet the expectation because the skills are really above their abilities, the risk is that they're going to withdraw from the sport because they're not enjoying it, and then they uh, just might not take it part, partake in sports at all. So burnout is another topic that's addressed by the position statement. Um, what are some things that we should be looking for when it comes to burnout, and how should we intervene in these athletes? Well, burnout occurs um, when young athletes go through a period of overtraining, and oftentimes they can have very vague symptoms. Uh, they might present with just some nonspecific musculoskeletal problems, uh, some fatigue, uh, sleeping problems, with muscle aches, weight loss, and things that we really can't pinpoint on, on one particular area. Um, and as, as you go through your evaluation, 
we we look at um, see if there's any organic cause. Um, looking for things such as thyroid problems or, or just other medical issues that might cause it. Um, and if we can't find that, we really need to dig deeper into their training um, volume and, and what their goals are, and to see um, if they're being pushed. Oftentimes, the personalities of someone who is um, burning out or overtraining, they're they're perfectionistic. They also oftentimes feel excessive demands from adults. Um, so really, once we make that diagnosis that this is burnout, this is overtraining syndrome, then the first step is really to have them stop their training and rest is part of the treatment. Rest is part of the recovery. Um, looking at that and then looking at their nutrition. And then once they recover, then they we can have them slowly start back um, into their training in a more controlled fashion. And also, oftentimes, the difference in younger kids as opposed to adults with burnout, oftentimes there's more of a, a psychological component. So we might need to get mental health providers to help us along. Well, I think there's also a misconception that, that when I think burnout, I think of that psychological aspect. And I think if somebody, oh, I'm just burned out of this, I don't want to do it anymore. But you really touch on some of those physical symptoms or physical signs that present themselves. And you just mentioned giving them a period of rest. I mean, how do you know when they're when they're better, when they're ready to resume? Are you just basic, basing that on the same questions about whether their sleep has improved or how do you know about with their energy and returning to sports? Is, is there a way that you might judge that decision on when they return back to play? A, a lot of it is establishing the rapport with the athlete and, and just following up with them and going through the, the history again and, and looking at their symptoms. So um, it can be extended period of time, greater than two months actually, um, for those who have uh, overtraining um, where it could take that. The other thing we can look at is there's a profile mood state, and we talk a little bit about that uh, in the paper, and there's a reference for that where we can look at it. It's a psychometric tool for that. Um, you know, I had an interesting patient not that long ago, a high-level swimmer who was uh, swimming internationally, and she came in because she was just um, really getting muscle aches and couldn't sleep. And, and had a battery of, of uh, lab tests and, and workup, and everything came back negative. And the whole problem was that she had uh, no rest over the past 12 months, was um, going through different time zones, and, and was just a, a true burnout. Um, and the treatment uh, initially was to have her stop training. Well, so I'd like to switch gears, if we could, for a little bit. Um, one of the things that the paper talks about that I think is extremely important uh, for everybody out there who sees these patients to know is risk factors for overuse injuries. The number one risk factor that the paper talks about is history of a prior injury. Can you tell us a little bit about why that's the case and how do we approach these athletes? If they come to us in a PPE or even to the clinic and they have a history of prior overuse injury, how do we, how do we approach them? How do we limit them or you know, should we limit them? What's the best way to go after these kids? Right. Uh, you know, what we've found in, in research in the paper and, and just in, in our clinical practices that uh, the history of prior injuries probably the most, most is the most common risk factor because either that initial injury wasn't completely rehabilitated or the underlying true causative factor wasn't determined or corrected. Um, and some, you know, a factor could be training volume equipment or biomechanics. For instance, if we've got a runner who's had a tibial stress fracture, we could just sit them down and they'll get better with rest and time. But we don't really look at some of the other factors when, when they return, 
um, they could get another stress fracture. So we we need to look at their training volume. You know, if they go back and they're running seven days a week, they're running high mileage, more than 40 miles a week, running in broken down shoes, and they have really poor biomechanics like weak external hip rotators, then they're going to be at risk for developing another injury, and it's just going to keep coming back until we really get to the root cause. And that makes a lot of sense, absolutely. Yeah, and, and I mean, in addition to just simply looking at uh, prior history of injuries, what, what other significant risk factors should we be looking for with regards to identifying athletes at risk for overuse injuries? Well, I, I think, uh, you know, Joel brought up some excellent points, and, and I think I would just want to amplify that just a little bit in the sense that as clinicians, sometimes making the diagnosis is not that difficult. But if you don't address that underlying cause, you've really undone half the job with overuse injuries. So I think Joel's point about really digging into that history, whatever the injury is, is so, so important. And to talk with the family, talk with the coaches, athletic trainers, what have you, to, to understand, you know, what led to that. I just wanted to emphasize that and, and the comments on that. I think um, probably one of the, the key, key issues with youth sports and overuse injuries is the growth and development uh, factor. And, you know, children undergo growth and development at different individual rates. So once again, chronological age is not a good marker for uh, growth and development. And we know that in particular body mass and height increase in this pre-adolescent and adolescent years, and that's when we think that overuse injuries may be more common in the clinical sense. Uh, we know from the basic science that the growth cartilage, which is present at the physis, the apophyses, and the articular surfaces are less resistant to forces, uh, whether they're shear forces or compressive forces, uh, during the time period. And I think what's very interesting is in the basic science literature, when they look at this issue and they test uh, the articular cartilage or the physis, it's pretty clear that those structures are weaker in specimens or uh, uh, or um, studies in which the specimens are, are in that phase of rapid growth. And that's compared to either the more mature specimen or the more immature specimen. And I think that's really an important point to know is that you can have a young athlete, all things being equal in terms of their training volume and everything else, and if you take that athlete and they're entering in that rapid phase of growth, they're more at risk for, we think, an overuse injury than either a younger uh, uh, athlete who's not going through the growth develop, uh, rapid growth and development or an older athlete who's on the downside of that curve. Um, and there is some clinical evidence uh, to support that. Uh, in particular, um, our paper reviewed lots of literature and in, in some of the studies in distal radial physeal stress injuries in, in young gymnasts, for example, um, those injuries were more likely to occur among those who are in that expected range of adolescent growth. We need a lot more research, I think, uh, looking at this relationship, but there are other factors that, that seem to be, make sense in terms of, for example, the age-adjusted bone mineral density tends to diminish uh, during peak height velocity, which sounds counterintuitive, but that may be a significant factor. And other factors such as lean tissue mass, hypermobility of the joints, and imbalances in growth and strength, all these things can play a role. So I think if there's one other factor besides intrinsic, I'm sorry, previous injuries, um, then I think growth and development is something that we need to 
have parents and coaches understand that when their child is entering that rapid pace of growth, probably not the time to ramp up their volume a lot. Focus more on the skill development rather than the volume. That's a great point about addressing that rapid growth phase. Can you give us like a clinical example of where you saw this in the training room or in the clinic and you identified a, a, an athlete that you decided to hold back or advise the coaches or parents or whatever to hold back? What should we be looking for when we're in the clinic to identify this and make sure they don't get injured? Well, I think Nero and Joel probably have lots of examples. But I think, you know, one example that I had uh, that was really uh, quite striking uh, was a 14-year-old uh, tennis player who uh, apparently was a fairly talented young tennis player, and uh, she and her mom and her sister decided to pull her out of school so she could be homeschooled and spend more time in the court. And she came in with a wrist injury without any history of trauma, and uh, it turned out that she had ramped up her training during her phase of rapid growth from basically um, about six hours a week to about 12 to 16 hours a week with basically on the court every day. And she wow. ended up having she ended up having a relatively uncommon stress injury involving the skateboard, which is simply due to all the repetitive hitting she had been doing. Hmm. Um, and that, that was pretty that's a pretty rare one. I also had a 16-year-old um, uh, softball pitcher who was trying to learn a drop pitch in softball. And a drop pitch in softball requires repetitive pronation or, or requires pronation, and she was trying to learn this pitch. And she uh, you know, was learning this pitch, and she developed a stress fracture of her ulnar shaft which, again, is relatively uncommon. And you put the volume together with the rapid growth, and these things, I think, are quite likely to, to be seen in sometimes very unusual uh, areas that you don't typically see stress injuries. That's great. That's a fantastic clinical pearl, watching for ramping up training during a rapid growth phase. Definitely something to watch for in the, in the clinical setting. So now we've been talking about some risk factors for uh, some of these injuries. Let's uh, touch on some of the injuries uh, themselves, if we could. Can you? I know there's several of the injuries that are mentioned in the in the article, but could you perhaps pick out a couple and give us some pearls, things that we should be watching out for? You know, red flags uh, when we see these patients in the training room at the clinic. Um, you know, how, how can we catch some of these serious uh, but relatively uncommon diagnoses? Well, one of the things we want to separate out uh, in this uh, in this uh, article was. Um, uh, overuse injuries from some that are, are maybe even surgical or career-ending. And, and the, I think our job as clinician is to first make sure our patients and our athletes do not get the really bad stuff. So I think when you're evaluating any athlete, uh, whether it be the training room or in your clinic, I think you should first assess the risk of the actual athlete. <clears throat> and so these athletes that are already the high-volume athletes and single-sport athletes and year-round athletes, your antennas should already be up because these are the folks that tend to get um, our higher-risk injuries. And while we still lack some data to make a clear association between your volume of training and high-risk injuries, I think we have seen enough examples and we have some early data that might suggest that association. So the second part of it is what area of the body are we dealing with and what kind of things should we consider? So, for, and I, I say like baseball is a game of inches, but actually the difference between a high-risk injury and a low-risk overuse injury is really a game of millimeters. Uh, one example might be in the low back. We see a lot of par stress fractures, which has a, a tendency to go on to non-union and, and get a complete spondylolysis, while a pedicle stress fracture may not have that same type of risk. 
but again, they sit very close to each other, and, and most studies will suggest that even your clinical exam isn't very predictive. Um, in fact, one Japanese study said that almost half of their athletes, 48.5% of them, who came in with negative x-rays ultimately had some sort of par stress injury. So, hmm. so and that would basically be <clears throat> on your history of evaluating what type of risk of athlete you have. So, so a couple of the areas would be the low back. A complicated area is actually the ankle and the foot. There's a number of different areas. For example, um, uh, the navicular is a high-risk stress area. Uh, the fifth metatarsal, as we know, uh, at the base doesn't like to heal. Um, and all these types of injuries tend to um, um, uh, worry us because if missed and if they go on to non-union or, or the bone dies off, then they actually may result in something surgical or even worse, uh, um, end a career. So, so I think the key thing is have your antenna up for the, for the high-risk training athlete and then think of the region of the body that you're uh, dealing with. Yeah, those are some great points. And I, I definitely encourage the listener to take a look at the, the actual article and look at some of the high-risk injuries that you guys talk about because these are definitely not to be missed and would certainly be potentially catastrophic if you did. Um, well, this has been great. Gentlemen, thank you very much for coming on the show. Did you have anything else that you'd like to share about the article before we uh, close out today? Well, I just wanted to mention that uh, the three of us that are on this call are only part of really an outstanding uh, group of riders, and I want to make sure that um, uh, Holly Benjamin, uh, Rakos, and Greg Landry, Andrew Gregory, and Anthony Luke, who all did a ton of work on this, uh, are acknowledged as, uh, without them and without all of us putting our work into this, uh, it would not have happened. It was a long process, as you know, and um, I want to make sure that uh, – Everyone recognizes that this was a big effort, and uh, AMSSM uh, really gave us some good resources to put this together. So I wanted to thank everyone who was involved uh, with this uh, project. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks to all those folks for helping out. And John, Joel, Nehru, thank you guys for being on this episode of AMSSM Sports Medcast. We appreciate you taking the time to put together this paper for all of us and for talking about it today. I uh, look forward to having you again in the future at some point. Thank you all. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Well, Paul, that was fantastic. So many pearls out of not just the article, but that discussion we just had with those guys. Uh, extremely smart, so much great information. I know you took a bunch out of it. I know I did. What did you get from what we just talked about over the last 20 or 30 minutes or so? Yeah, that, that chock full of clinical pearls, obviously. And a couple of things that I took away, one was, when you talk about the prior injury being the number one risk factor for an overuse injury, and that when you see that in clinic, you can't just you can't just treat the injury. You have to think about what led to that injury in the first place, not just the you know so why did they get a prior injury? What what's wrong with their training regimen? What's wrong with uh, their mechanics? What do we what do we have to emphasize, or they're just going to keep repeating the same pattern? Uh, another another uh, pearl that I took away was that the difficulty with approaching some of these parents and in, in our cultural society today of, oh, we've got a, you know, early specialization and, and year-round participation. How can we talk to these parents when the kid is dealing with an injury or dealing with burnout? And they, they talked about, well, what if, you know, think about your long-term goals and really having this kid go back with an injury or when they're not at 100% may be detrimental to those long-term goals. And that by emphasizing that, that, that performance as one of the factors of talking with the parents, maybe you'll, you'll get somewhere in what's uh, usually a very difficult conversation. 
Sure. And then fin- finally, you know, the topic of burnout's great. And I've always thought of burnout as being more of a mental or psychological phenomenon. And just to hear about, hey, muscle aches and sleep issues and fatigue and you kind of run out of ideas, you don't know what to go with. Think of that as a diagnosis and that sometimes these athletes require a pretty prolonged rest uh, and, and an emphasis on nutrition to get them back to uh, participation. How about you, Scott? What, what, uh, what are some pearls you took away? Uh, yeah, again, so many things to choose from. But I have to say, you know, I'm not very smart, and I really do enjoy the numbers because it gives me something solid to hold on to um, in my insecurity. And I thought that that watching for greater than 16 hours per week of training was fantastic. I mean, that's something hard that you can lay down right in front of your athlete and say, hey, you're breaching this, we're throwing up a red flag, and, you know, this could be concerning. Um, and, or if they come in with an injury, hey, this is part of the issue right here. Uh, second, I was really interesting talking about not ramping up training during a rapid growth phase. I thought that was good, certainly uh, challenging to, to pick up on, um, but it's uh, definitely a great point, something to watch out for that I hadn't really been watching out for in, uh, in the past. And last, and certainly because I do spend some time in the emergency department, uh, one of my favorite things was the high-risk versus low-risk overuse injuries, which is found on Table 3 in the article. And I highly recommend all of the listeners that get this article to cut out table three, to paste it in your office, post it on the wall of your clinic. I mean, this is everything you need to know about high and low-risk injuries. These are huge issues. If you miss it, it's going to have a bad outcome, and you don't want to be responsible for that. You don't want to hold these athletes back um, or potentially end their career. So fantastic, fantastic information. Yeah, so I'll second that on that table. That's a, it's a great table. And I mean, can you believe when you talked about the Japanese study with almost 50% of those PARS fractures being missed on regular x-rays and – I mean, this is the kind of stuff that we got to know. We can't miss it, and I love that. So, yeah, uh, great, that's, great discussion. Absolutely, scary stuff. So, uh, this has been great. I really enjoyed this episode. Uh, thank you all for tuning in. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter uh, with our handle at SportsMedCast, and we look forward to bringing you some more clinically relevant, exciting pearls in the near future. Until then, take care.